Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to an episode of the Audio Signals Podcast with Marco Cipelli. In this new season, Audio Signals is repositioning its antennas, focusing not just on the stories, but on the storytellers. In our modern hybrid analog digital society, the art of storytelling has never been more vital or displayed such a diverse array of forms. Recognizing this, our conversations will spotlight the narrators, providing a unique exploration into the minds behind the narratives. From authors to podcasters, visual artists to songwriters, and everything in between, we will engage with all who contribute to this extraordinary tapestry of human experience. We are all made of stories, after all. All right, everybody, this is Audio Signal Podcast. I, I just, I have to say that I'm not even going to make an introduction today. This is uh, Bill. Uh, he's been on the show with me, not on this show, on Redefining uh, Society. We talked about something that still to- storytelling, but it was about a, a political, technological story about the Camp David Pact. Um, today, we are an Audio Signal Podcast, and we were already chatting. I say, hey, hold on a second. Uh, let's just hit record and uh, and let's keep doing it. This is about him as uh, a, a person of travel for work, as a journalist all over the world that has a passion for food and good wine. He wrote some books about that. So I said, those are great stories. How are those, Bill? Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me, Marco. And um, yeah, I guess my journey begins uh, when I was in college. I was lucky enough to... to uh, uh, have as a professor John Hersey, who wrote the famous book Hiroshima, appeared in the New Yorker, the first man to really discover uh, the true devastation uh, that the atomic bomb had brought, and to describe it in a narrative nonfiction using fictional techniques, but uh, uh, it was all true stories. And um, we had a very small uh, seminar with him when I was at Yale. and. Uh, I, I, I went off really inspired that the, the stories of, of people could really um, make a difference if they were told from the bottom up. And I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to go to Europe after I graduated. And I said, oh, I'll be a foreign correspondent. And I remember walking around the streets of Paris, uh, going into every American journalist's office and saying, hey, do you have a free desk? I'll, I'll do some free research for you. And one man, uh, one journalist said yes. And soon enough, I was writing away. Uh, I became a staff correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor and spent 10 really happy years with them. Um, And and I was doing serious politics mostly, but I always loved the sort of underlying stories of real people, people on the ground uh, that uh, John Hersey had taught me about, I think. And... um, you know, I, I, I went uh, from 1981 to 85, so you can know how old I am, but uh, I went uh, and covered mostly Western Europe, uh, France, uh, uh, and from 85 to 90, I was lucky enough to cover um, Central Europe, the communist Europe, behind the Iron Curtain, and I spent... And I know years. you wrote a book about that too, right? Yeah, that was my first book, and it was really a... I, I was very, uh, I was lucky because no one thought there was a story there. It was, uh, I would go to Poland and there were four or five of us as American journalists, maybe maybe a couple more, but not many uh, in, in, in the re- entire region because it was sort of frozen, people thought. But I saw these great stories about how um, 
you know, environmental activists were getting uh, uh, signing petitions, how religious uh, movements were uh, peppering up, fl flourishing, and, and how young people were really changing and, and, and calling for freedom. So when everyone thinks that Mikhail Gorbachev and the Soviet Union brought all the change, I was really convinced a lot of it was forced from the bottom up, and he just opened the door and let them go through. That was my first book. I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, telling stories of you, you know, up, upward uh, uh, of individuals who were making a difference uh, from the bottom up. I mean, it was it was about um, the the book was about environmental activists starting uh, a, a movement to clean up water that turned political uh, and and. Who could be against oh, how water? things started? Uh, that yeah. was their and it was about uh, religious activists signing a petition for religious freedom. Uh, I remember going to a little Czech village and and meeting the the author of the petition, who had been thrown into a psychiatric hospital and so forth, uh, mm. and uh, yet had brought real change uh, and really questioned the government all before uh, the revolutions. Uh, and I always wondered whether I would have had the same same courage to stand up uh, uh, for uh, values and freedom. And it was really inspiring to me, to uh, the people I met. I, I was lucky enough to meet, uh, you know, uh, Václav Havel, Lech Wałęsa, and all the others, uh, and then say, you know, a few months later, they became president, prime minister, and <laughs> so forth. So it was really a privileged time. And, and the first book is called Lighting the Night. It was written very fast after the revolutions. I, I think it was a, you know, it was a, it was a great book, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was really a firsthand account right then and there. I probably should update it 20 years later when the story is both uh, positive. Well, you know, and it's funny. I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was in Europe at the time in my, in my 20s. So I remember the excitement of that. And, uh, you know, and I had the opportunity actually to visit Prague uh, with a soccer team at the time when I was 17, when uh, the wall was still up. So we had some special permits to, to go there. And I mean, it was beautiful city, beautiful place. And, uh, you know, uh, actually in Budapest as well. Yeah, and the place, uh, yeah, a lot of culture. And talking about that, what, what do you do when you when you go visit the first time a new place, especially in Europe, where I always say, that, and I don't know about you, I mean, you, you also have the both side of experience. Like, you know, you're in America more often, unless you really go to the extreme part of the country and you find different kind of traditional food, but you can always find that common, you know, denominator food. Uh, maybe it's the fast food, maybe it's the hamburger, I don't know. But when you go in Europe and you cross the border, especially 20, 30 years ago, it was a different world. I mean, different food, 100%, different experience. Like, I don't even know what this is. It's not, uh, I have to admit that uh, going to Central Europe, communist Central Europe in the 1980s was not what developed my culinary tastes or... or well, design. you were in Paris. But, was, but, but, but I guess what I'm saying is, and, and we dive more into that, is that even if you may not, like it or maybe you know be the best you know french cuisine or italian cuisine or but you still get a flavor pun intended of their culture the way you're living i mean yeah. it, it reflects who they are their economy uh, 
and in that case, unfortunately, no, their politics too. You're you're totally right. I mean, I would go to Poland and say, "This is my grandmother's cooking," because uh, <laughs> it uh, so much resembled. There were no Jews left there, but there was a lot of Ashkenazi Jewish style cooking <laughs> with the duck and cherries, the stuff that my my uh, my grandmom used to make, the gefilte fish and so forth. So, yeah, I always did see food and wine as a sort of window onto society in an exciting way. I mean, even. Uh, I remember going uh, to the Basque country and, and uh, when they were doing that, I was doing a story on the politics of nationalism in, in the Basque uh, country, but I took time out to do a story on the three-star Michelin restaurant there because uh, he really, you know, the, the Basques are incredibly proud of their, of their cooking and it's part of their cultural identity, like you say. But I guess what really turned me to food and wine was, you know, after I'd done the positive revolutions and you know, covered the positive revolutions in Central Europe, the, the story moved to the Yugoslavia and I covered the beginning of that tragedy, the war. Um, actually my successor at the Christian Science Monitor won Pulitzer Prize for discovering the massacre, uncovering the massacre at Srebrenica. Hmm. I had always thought that in Northern, you know, Poland, Czechoslovakia and Hungary, it was positive patriotism and uh, desire for freedom. It was all nonviolent. In the Balkans, it was violent and negative nationalism. Um, you know, I stayed and did it, but uh, I wanted to do something different. That wasn't my war correspondency, wasn't really what I was, just started a family and I, I felt like, no, this isn't really how I want to spend the next five years of my life in the Balkans. I'd spent a lot of time there, did it. And I looked for another project and I found the project in, of all places, I wrote a small article for The Economist about a chef in France who had two Michelin stars and wanted to get his third. And I went off to, I sold the book project after the article came out uh, and uh, moved to Burgundy with my uh, young family, young son who lives in Los Angeles now. But uh, um, so... We moved to, to Burgundy with a baby and um, basically lived in a village for a year. And uh, I tried to tell, it was my second book. It was called Burgundy Stars. And it was a, a book that tried to tell the story of uh, Michelin Guide, of course, and a Chef's Quest, but really the life behind a famous restaurant. What do they what do, they, uh, do from top to bottom? So there's the story of the American uh, galley slave, stagiaire, you call them galley slave here, but uh, uh, who comes to France to try to uh, to work in this restaurant and gets fired. And then there's the story of the sommelier who goes out and gets the wines and the and and the the, the wife's role. How women have a tough time in in in, in a restaurant, uh, oak cuisine in general, and how you know you're basically a military operation in this in this restaurant. So I thought it was the first sort of realistic book about uh, about haute cuisine. You know, not everything wasn't pretty and wonderful, but it was rough and and tough. Uh, and it was a book that really tried to talk about how France was modernizing, but keeping some traditions. It was about the history of, of cooking. There was the communist restaurant in the village, which uh, dealt with the workers, and then the 
I was I was portraying the restaurant that was uh, favored by the right wing, so it was political. It was about the rise of the automobile because there was the Michelin Guide, uh, the Michelin tires, and and the whole history of these great restaurants that that were basically uh, put on the road from Paris to Nice as people went on vacation. They would stop and. You know, you know. I, I want to open a parenthesis here because uh, a lot of people use Michelin stars. They all know that means excellent level of cuisine, but not only cuisine, but service and and all of that. Mm -hmm. But very little, I think they they think about Michelin as the tires <laughs> and how the the beginning of the actual yep. book started. So. Maybe if you want to throw a, a little bit of background on that, that would be. Yeah, it was. I mean, the Michelin Guide was created at the same time as the rise of the automobile, and it was created to 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 encourage people to use their automobile and go get a great meal. Yep. Um, and the restaurant that I portrayed was in Burgundy was uh, one of the first stop out of Paris where you would stop for the night, have a great meal and move on. So it was a historic restaurant from the 1930s. Was it the first trip advisor? What do you think? <laughs> well, <laughs> we have, a, no, uh, no, the Michelin guide still has, uh, you, you know, the anonymous, there was the mystery around it. No, no, but, but I mean, it's kind of like, okay, I need a book. I don't know where I'm going. Uh, yeah. Who's the reviewer? In this case, it's it's not the yeah. internet, but it was a, an actual guide and book. Yeah, I mean, it, the book tried, I mean, uh, later when Anthony Bourdon uh, wrote, you know, his, his uh, epic Uh, stories about restaurant uh, life. Uh, you know, my book tried to do the same to a certain, mm -hmm. uh, to a large extent, to be very realistic about the the stress and the uh, and and the chef himself. Uh, it was a very sad story. He was a wonderful man named Bernard Doiseau. Um, he was a manic depressive. It was pretty clear, mm -hmm. and I tell about that in the book. But at that time. Uh, That type of up and down was something that you didn't uh, deal with very well in France. It wasn't really acknowledged as a as a real thing. And then ten years after I finished the book, he committed suicide, which mm -hmm. was really a a, a real tragedy. Um, but he was a wonderful man who uh, uh, you know was passionate about what he was doing and fun to be with and uh, a bon vivant, but also a, a performer, uh, uh, a real um, a real star. Uh, and, yeah. um, you know, it was the up and down of, uh, it was he, the time I was looking at this, his, his, um, food was changing in France. It was moving away from heavy sauces and being much more minimalistic. Nouvelle cuisine was coming in and he was taking it a next step forward. Um, his dishes were very pure. Uh, he he would take out all the extraneous stuff. Two to three elements was enough for him, and he had a great eye uh, for turning traditional dishes into something more modern and acceptable to our. So, was this something that was reflecting on your opinion? I mean, you you obviously tell the story of one restaurateur, one restaurant. Was it a good example of what was happening all over? Well, France? at the time, at the time it was, uh, it is, I mean, I was telling the story of, uh, uh, of uh, Nouvelle Cuisine and uh, right. the aftermath. And I interviewed Paul Bocuse and all the other, I remember going to Trois to because he had, the, 
Bernard had started his career at Trois-Gros, who was the forerunner of, uh, of great uh, Nouvelle Cuisine, which was really to bring the chef out of the, out of the background and promote the chef as a, as a superstar. So you had these working class guys who all of a sudden, it was no longer the owner of the restaurant, it was the, it was the chef uh, who was the superstar. That was new. And yeah. what happened after I left was the cooking moved on. I remember what we were doing, I did cooking shows for PBS with a partner in New York. And, you know, we went to Spain and, and they started using, uh, it was El Bulli. We were one of the first to, to do a TV show and write about El Bulli, which is this crazy restaurant in, in Catalonia, just south of the French border. They were using foams and gels and explosions, and it was molecular cuisine. Mm -hmm. And Bernard looked at this, and he thought it was just weird, and yeah. he couldn't deal with it. And, and I think you use a nice word there, weird. He probably said something different. Yeah, he thought it was just <laughs> it was just not like it. He would prefer a roast chicken that was well done uh, to, to yeah. sort of well, being, being Italian, I can think about a few people that you know that have restaurant and will think that's not yeah. but you know I, i've seen special on that it's it's interesting it's yeah. experimenting because that's yeah. that's what it's cooking really is too. over uh, over time and and you know it used to be that spanish cuisine was just sort of emulating french and copying it i remember the three-star michelin restaurant in basque country he, he had trained classic french quick cooking but uh you know i think Food is also interesting because it follows money and it says a lot about the economy of a, of a, of a, of a country. And as Spain got rich, uh, all of a sudden they had a market for new things. They always had great products, great hams, great olives, great vegetables, great fish. I mean, it's amazing uh, uh, produce and bounty of, uh, of the land. Uh, but uh, now they had sort of complete freedom to, to invent and uh, go upscale in a in a in a really determined way, and the French didn't like it. When, <laughs> I remember when we did the show where we invited the uh, El Bouli chef Ferran Adria to Paris for the first time, and he was cooking with Michel Gerard. Uh, I think Bocuse was there, uh, but oh Bernard. I think Bernard was there too. So uh, a lot of them, and uh, you know, this Spanish interloper came in and and sort of uh, uh, drove all the French crazy. I think basically. And then they started copying him. So uh, it it uh, it moves in both directions. I think. So I think if you say something interesting, at least it grabbed my attention because I I actually I like to watch. Uh, Bourdain, all the the show because I mean he he was really great in telling you. He was talking about food, but he was telling about people living in, in these places. I mean, episodes like in Singapore or in Thailand or other places, it wasn't yeah. just about the food. It was chatting with people. What are the problem? Uh, what are the, the things that they do? I mean, the, the, the culture, what they're trying to achieve. And, and But you said something about the, the, the coming out from the kitchen to the front stage. And I, I I like that, and and it kind of there is a story there, in my opinion. When when you look at TV show now, either it's a it's a pizzaiolo in Naples, or is a you know a, a somebody Chef's that makes tapas, now. right? Tapas in uh, in Catalonia or whatever it is. They they are representing the restaurant. You don't even know who owns the restaurant. And and I I want you to elaborate more on that. I mean, what? 
what does it mean? Did it become entertainment on top of good food? What? Well, it, it was a change in role, right? I mean, the, the chef became the identity of the restaurant. And often in, in the case that I was, uh, Bernard Boiseau, he owned the restaurant. He had taken right. that alone. And it, part of the book recounts how he goes public with his company and starts building franchise restaurants in Paris and so forth. And uh, leveraging his name by uh, producing frozen food with the largest frozen food mm. producer. Do I, do so I see a Disney movie movie. here? Excuse me? Do I see a Disney movie here? You know, if well, you there was a movie, movie that seemed <laughs> to take a lot of... Actually, there were two movies made off of this book, but uh, yeah. one was an American, a French movie called American Chef with Eddie Michel, and uh, I believe it, it followed the story of the young... Uh, American uh, uh, intern, galley slave, stagiaire, if you want to mm -hmm. use the French, uh, going to a, a fancy French restaurant and working there and falling in love. That part didn't happen in my book, but in the movie it does. <laughs> and um, there was another, Ratatouille, which people yeah. have, under, have heard more. It's, uh, I was listening uh, when I was in the movie theater and watching that. I said, mm, sounds familiar. Yeah, all they I, all... They all uh... They're all taking over and then making frozen food, definitely. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, there was definitely, <laughs> uh, there were a lot of themes that, that came out in Hollywood or okay. in movies afterwards about, about this. So, That's yes. Yeah. So it does represent all these cultural changes and, 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 and money. And at, at the end, it goes, it goes with yeah. that. And I then, mean, what's interesting in food now in Europe, um, you know, uh, is that uh, food definitely follows money, but uh, there used to be a great division, I think, between Protestant Northern Europe and uh, Catholic Southern Europe with uh, you ate well. I mean, I'm living in Belgium now, so in Belgium, Catholic country, you eat really well. Uh, French finesse with German-sized portions, but you cross the border to Protestant Netherlands and it was pretty um, food as fuel and very uninteresting to say the least, in my opinion. And uh, further north, uh, even less interesting. But uh, all of a sudden, after Spain went, uh, you know, molecular cuisine, New Nordic came in, and I and uh, Noma in in Copenhagen, and the idea of uh, Nordic berries and uh, uh, not. Uh, not scavenging, but you know, going into the forest and getting your mushrooms and your herbs and and so forth. Much of the most innovative cooking goes to the Nordic region. So the religious barriers to food following money uh, uh, have broken down in the last twenty years, and I think that's part of the story in America. We were uh, growing up. I was was pretty. Uh, you know, I remember going back to America and seeing 1990 to write my first book on communism and remembering in Boston, I was at Harvard, that the, uh, that the supermarkets only had apples at that point, I thought. And after coming from a decade in France, it was pretty bare, bare stuff in America. America's changed a lot, too. So, so let's explain this, because there is that, this social, cultural correlation and, and with the religions and the food and again everything is always connected so let, let's put it that way but so the, this division and different leaning one side or another of really good food versus food is mostly for sustain yourself it's it's coming from religious background 
that's I, I never I, actually thought it like that. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I think definitely there is that type of you know, uh, attitude towards food that is in Protestant countries that it is fuel, uh, it's uh, sustenance, and Catholic Europe, you know, being around the table, enjoying, even being gluttonous is is seen as a virtue in some ways. I right. Think, uh, right. Or at least acceptable. And talking about uh, religion, and uh, it makes me think about wine. Of course, it's a different kind of wine, <laughs> the wine you get into church. But uh, I know that you were in Burgundy, and for people familiar, I mean, one of the yeah. best wine in the world come from there. I'm from Tuscany, so we kind of uh, touched on this last time. You know, it's maybe yeah. taste, but I got to be honest, I... I'm not a connoisseur of, of wine. I'm not a sommelier or anything. And I know good wine when I try it. But I know you actually wrote about that too. But yeah, if you got it with a with, with a kind of the economical political perspective. Exactly. I mean, at that, um, so the book on Burgundy, one chapter is about uh, going with the sommelier. I used to leave at nine in the morning, come back at nine in the evening, my lips all red and everything, but wow, okay. about how they stopped the cellar. And it was also, uh, there was a chapter about the, you know, the traditions of Burgundy wine growing, uh, which are very sort of it's small family owned domains and so forth. Uh, and, and how they were reaching now a global market and so forth. Uh, and, and, and I, I kept on writing about wine, uh, wrote for the Wine Spectator, but also I wrote a cover story for Business Week. I worked as a staff reporter at Business Week during the end of the 1990s, and uh, uh, Bordeaux seemed to be the country, uh, the, the region to, that really represented wine and, and, and so forth. So I um, spent a year in, in, in Bordeaux uh, following four stories, uh, about uh, following a year of, of, of harvesting and vinifying. And then, uh, so you have the cycle of the year, but you have also four stories about uh, the different, let's say, pictures of, of Bordeaux. Uh, one was the, the book is called Noble Rot. And one was about an aristocratic uh, uh, family uh, that was selling out its uh, esteemed estate uh, where they made noble rot wines, you know, Sauterne, the sweet wines, uh, and uh, the family fight over uh, whether they should sell out or not sell out. Uh, another was about, uh, you know, an investment bank coming in and buying a big estate and, 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 and overturning it on the left bank. And another was about the guys producing wines in garages on the right bank that were rivaling the the prices of the most expensive wines. And the last one was about a cooperative uh, making, uh, you know, everyday wines. But the- And again, what year was this? This was, I was there 2001. I remember because okay. it was, uh, you know, yep. the attacks on the World Trade Center happened during the middle of the harvest. Uh, so it was kind of like the beginning of that transition where, I mean, I'm not saying the wine, always had a pretty high status, not always, but lately. But at a certain point, it became more, again, of a, of a big investment where corporations started to get involved. Yeah. Uh, the, the land, I mean, even here in California, for example, lately they've been transforming a lot of the landscape. And I think they embraced a lot the technology too. Um, yes. So, I mean, traditional, but technology is heavy there. It's yeah. a delicate product. 
to do. Yes, but there was, I mean, uh, uh, so part of the book was also about fast France, modern France, because most of, in this most traditional wine growing regions, you had some of the most innovative enologists, the guys who were uh, consulting and making wine. And I remember following Michel Roland, who is a famous flying winemaker, on a full day as he went and tasted, <laughs> tasted in his flying. Well, because he was making wine in Chile, in Argentina, in South Africa, and California. Oh, wow. And uh, the criticism was that his wines tasted all the same. For me, they <laughs> all tasted great because they were all fresh, fruity, and juicy. Um, and he was a you know superstar reinventing uh, sort of how you mixed wines, but also uh, they would make sure the, uh, the, the harvests were... Um, you know, they, they would do green harvesting, reducing the yields, because if you produce less grapes on the same uh, vineyards, you produce a more concentrated juice, and he would use carbon, uh, uh, they would sort of not freeze, but uh, make it uh, stock fermentation so that they would keep it fresh, and none of the sort of bitterness that you can get into, uh, or, or weediness that can get into sort of poor wines. Um, but he was also very criticized by traditionalists as not allowing the, the, the sound and the taste of the terroir of the land come through because he masked it in these overripe grapes. And there was also an American angle to the, all of this story, which was, um, you know, there was the American critic Robert Parker, who was invented this 100-point system, which allowed someone who didn't have a 300-year-old chateau some of the guys making wine in their garage, if they made really great wine and Robert Parker gave you a, a grade over 90 points, you could sell it at very high price in America. And that was transforming the economics of, 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 of Bordeaux. Guys could didn't need to have the, the ranking from 1855 to to get high prices for their wines, and that was part so, of my So, story. how does this innovation of the one hundred point ranking came to be? So, uh, you know, traditionally there was a classification in Bordeaux, and it was set in stone in eighteen fifty five. You were a first growth, second growth, <laughs> fourth growth, and it couldn't really be changed. No, not opening for new generation. Right. Yeah. So that was noble rot. Right. So you got these guys from eighteen fifty five who were making good or bad wines, uh, often different, but they had the the you know premier grand cru. And they could sell it for whatever they wanted. And, oh. um, you know, uh, the American uh, came in and he was, uh, he, he lives in uh, north of Baltimore and not in a wine growing region. Uh, he just uh, would taste what he tasted and like what he liked. And he invented the 100 point system based on how we grade our, uh, you know, in classroom, right? Up to 100 mm -hmm. points. Uh, and the, the saying soon became that, uh, you know, if you get more than 90 points, you can't find it because it's sold out. If you get less than 90 points, you can't sell it. And that was really revolutionizing um, French wines because he was became the arbiter uh, in many ways. There were others who came in and do something similar, but uh, the wine spectator, James. Sounds like a little bit more meritocratic and using standard that uh, you can apply. I, I guess it's it yeah. involved 
the taste, it involves the way it's made, it involves a lot of different parameters, I'm assuming. Instead well, he of had that, very... here's my brand, here's my name, I've done it for a long time. Well, that doesn't mean it's good. Not every year is the same year on the, on the wine year. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, that's totally true. He's very controversial in the sense, uh, uh, half of the traditionalists in France say he's ruining French wine and, yeah, and he's, the, he's a horror. <laughs> And half say, God, I, I'm getting rich because of this guy. I mean, mm -hmm. you would walk into, in Côte d'Oron also, outside of Bordeaux, you know, he basically took Chateau Neuf de Pape, which was considered a sort of okay, but nothing special wine, mm -hmm. and, and brought it up into the stratosphere. So, uh, you know, you go in and there's streets named after him because he really made entire regions and villages uh, and, and the trick of French wines are difficult because, you know, you have a hundred or maybe a thousand or lots of wines being made in a village like Saint-Emilion. And, and some are just fantastic, world-beating, and many are just horrible. And the, the label doesn't tell you anything. It just says Saint-Emilion, uh, and uh, you're, you're lost. I mean, it's not like... Uh, uh, champagne, where there are big brands that are, are sort of assuring the uh, regular quality of something. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't. Ha it doesn't happen in France. You go from the simple to the sublime in the same next door neighbors can be making completely different wines. And they're small, relatively small properties by by global standards. So, um, you know, he walked in and shook that that world up, and that's what I was writing about, uh, which was was. Uh, you know, it really is a little bit our French-American relationship, love and hate, right? I mean, the French were our first allies, but uh, we also have a lot of tension often uh, the, between the two of us. And, and uh, you know, Bordeaux wine reflects that. And, you know, and it still does. I mean, I, I read sometimes the news like, yeah, let's just slap an extra tax on on the the wine that come from Europe or this region, and and it can change the politics of things because it's such a big economy. I mean, if you do that, uh, it could be locally perceived as a, as an offense. Again, <laughs> you're talking about very passionate uh, population there, and and that could affect export, yeah, import, no, and all of that at a high level because. Here's a question for you. So you cover the the character that, that made the story in this case, like the chef, the the person that makes the wine, the producer. How do you see this reflecting onto the consumer? So not everybody can go to eat at the you know three, five star Michelin restaurant, not everybody can buy the bottle of wine that costs hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars. And, you know, you, you have to say, well, good thing that is open to maybe a 10 bucks yeah. bottle of wine. Not, not everybody yeah. can afford that. And No, I, I totally agree. Now, I mean, uh, the three-star Michelin restaurants have become, <laughs> I really don't go that often because they have become so expensive uh, that just doesn't fit well with me. Uh, but I think, you know, the same thing with the first, the, the most expensive wines. Uh, uh, yeah, I really appreciate them, but I don't drink them regularly. I've had one bottle of, from that book left of Chateau Ozone, which must be $400 or something 
outrageous. And I haven't been able to find a time where I'm really willing to open that. Uh, and I hope you, you kept it well. Yeah, I hope so too. It's sitting in my <laughs> it's sitting in my cellar. Uh, I think it's 1998, so from the okay. year I, I did, and I don't know when to use it because it's uh, you know I have one bottle, but uh, yeah. it's so expensive. But I think I think you're right. These um, uh, you know the prices and the, of the top most exclusive stuff have become uh, that uh, unaffordable to most people and uh, forbidding. Even if you could afford it, you're not sure you really want to spend that much money on it. So. Uh, but does it drive the decision, let's say, the trends of regular people kind of restaurants and wine? So are they still yeah, leading? Like it's kind of like, I'm thinking fashion, right? I mean, not yeah. many people can afford the, the griff, but, you know, if they say, Gucci said this and Armani said that, and everybody follows. Yeah, um, I think it's whole cuisine and, you know, you have pret-a-porte, even when I was doing it, and I made that analogy, I remember with Bernard Loiseau, the chef I profiled, that um, you know we went to a series, he created a series of bistros, uh, and he was always uh, thinking about you know, how could he make his uh, haute couture product more accessible, because the money's in Pret-a-Porter more than haute couture. They don't make that much money. He was struggling financially until he was able to leverage his name and his notoriety to, to, to these other uh, ventures. And, and wine is a little bit the same, a lot the same way. It's, uh, you know, uh, there's one Chateau Ozone that's uh, getting $40, $400 a bottle or something, but uh, the guy's really making the money and there's been consolidation in the wine industry are able to produce the 10 to $20 uh, bottle that uh, can sell in larger quantities. Often using some of the same techniques, but on less prestigious vineyards. Or, um, uh, you know, I was always searching out for myself. And Bordeaux is a is a large wine region uh, with makes a lot of ordinary everyday wines. And there are guys who are making in these less prestigious places in Bordeaux some well priced wines. So, and let's face it, that. not everybody can tell the difference. No, and it, it can be well made. If it's well made, uh, it's well made, right? Uh, I mean, it it so. takes a sommelier probably to say no. This is the four hundred dollars. Yeah, and this is I mean, the I always. Uh, it's interesting. A lot of the great value wines now come from Spain, and uh, I'd always written and I'd written a story about um, Spanish wine and had an idea. I could never sell the book, but uh, uh, you know, as Spain is modernized, so has its winemaking and. Uh, there was one family, the Palacio family, who I really thought was interesting because they were a Rioja family, and then they were kicked out of uh, uh, the 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 son was kicked out because he wanted to make he had gone to Bordeaux and studied with Michel Roland and the other famous uh, modern winemakers, and uh, had been kicked out of the family vinery and went to an unknown place called Priorat. So in, in Spain, a very rugged region south of Barcelona, and he started producing wines, and they soon, Robert Parker and others saw them, and they became the best wines out of, or uh, uh, highly rated wines out of Spain. His family uh, uh, vineyard went, went broke, <laughs> and they pulled him in, and he revived it. Now he makes wine all over Spain and in places that used to make 
unknown wines like uh, Berceau, if you've ever heard of it. I just bought some Palacios de uh, Berceau makes from a grape that no one rated called Mencia. It's not, it's not that far from Pinot Noir in some ways. Okay. It's a little less robust than traditional Spanish wines. But you find great Spanish wines all over the country, great ones in southern Italy. So, I mean, these techniques are being exported. And I know there's a lot of um, nostalgia for sort of the tradition and terroir. And there was even a, a movie made uh, uh, with some of the main, same characters I portrayed in my book uh, called Mondovino, which was lamenting uh, how... I heard of it. I never was saying of it. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of my book. He basically thought that Michel Roland and all these Robert Parker were ruining French wine, standardizing tastes, and bringing an American... Mm. Uh, lack of culture to uh, to the French wine world, and you know, uh, it's it's a it's point of view. It wasn't my point of view, though. But you know uh, what? To finish this conversation, which we're already at forty minutes, and I, I could talk about this forever. And anytime you want to come back and chill with me and tell more story, I'm happy to have you. But my other my after this, I wrote a book about golf of all things. We can have that. Hey, I, I gave it a, a few try when I was living in uh, in Florida, so we can talk about golf too. Yep. But but in this case, I want to close with this. Every story, uh, if you use the standard storytelling there is always the, the antagonist you know there is the good there is the bad there is the one that think one way the one that think another and and in these all stories that you told either the, the cuisine or the other book the other movie uh even in describing how there are the traditionalists the one that want to open to different markets and culture those are what make story. If there was one way only, it would be pretty boring. We would never evolve, right? So the way I see or the lesson is it's okay that some people likes and see the world that way and others see the other, as long as we, from that, we grow, right? And I think yeah. that's a lesson for a lot right. of things, right? Yeah, and I, as I, I, I mean, in all these stories, it was modern versus tradition. And of course, both have their values and both have their pleasures. Uh, there's not one, uh, mon one mono taste. And uh, what makes France so appealing still is how it manages to bring the modern and traditional together. Um, Spain is great too. Uh, I think that is in Europe is, is, is still a real story. And um, you know, if, if the idea is we're going to go back to 1900 uh, or Europe will just become a museum, that that's really would be sad in the end. They, you know, in winemaking and in food, they're still innovators uh, in many other fields. Yeah. Often the, the French just don't realize or accept that, hey, they got Europe's most valuable company and it makes Louis Vuitton's handbags, but that's something pretty good, right? And they've created yeah. something pretty modern from that. Yeah. And I think that's the that's exactly the the lesson that we're looking now into into a lot of industry. There is this coming back to a tradition, but with the technology that we have. So it, it's I love the fact that we are we're kind of merging both. I mean, even even in the car industry, if you want to look at that right now, uh, you know they're bringing back an old style, old model, but with the modern technology. So it's kind of Kind of interesting. 
Uh, Bill, I really, really appreciate it. Your uh, conversation, your stories. And again, uh, yeah, sure. Come back with the with the golf. I'll be be in Los Angeles in mid-November. We should get together and do the golf thing with my son. Okay. Okay. And that will be great. Bring him him in. Bring him on. Yeah, I'll bring him in. He's in Long Beach. So we get together. Sounds good. All right. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be linked for to the books from Bill and the story and uh, his uh, social media if you want to get in touch with him. And of course, stay tuned. We'll have more story, maybe about food, about something, other things and enjoyable, I hope, for everybody. Subscribe, stay tuned. See ya, Bill. Take care. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals with Marco Cepelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our shows. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.